people, how we doing? Here we are, another Sunday morning. Thank, thank you, Lord. So we're continuing our series, The Call of the King. Uh, before we jump in, a couple things I just want to say. Um, the elders are still monitoring, you know, situation with uh, all this uh, stuff, pandemic stuff going on. And uh, we are going to continue to meet just as we have been. If you want to wear a mask, we want to encourage you, go ahead and wear a mask. And uh, if you want some social distance, you know, those of us who aren't masking up and whatnot, we can give some freedom and some grace. No problem. No sweat. We've got this. If you want to be out in the parking lot, we are still trying to figure out and tweak FM radio signals, boost other places. So uh, uh, we're trying to accommodate as best we can in the circumstances that we have. So uh, the second thing is next week, I'm taking a little bit of rest and vacation time, and our brother J.J. McCauley is going to be bringing us our Sunday morning lesson. So you won't want to miss that. J.J. is a thoughtful guy, and he'll bring us something good. But this series, The Call of the King, we are trying to ask some hard questions. What kind of priority are we giving to Jesus Christ in our lives? That's what this boils down to. What kind of priority are we giving him? So I realized that the content of these lessons, it's been heavy, a little bit heavy these last couple weeks. And uh, so you know my intent is not to rub our noses in our own failures or shortcomings. And no doubt the enemy of our souls, he uses our discouragement against us. Uh, our own failures things that we're ashamed of, our shortcomings, and he tempts us with those things. With that discouragement, we are tempted to just throw up our hands. Why bother? This is just too depressing. But the call of our king, it even saves us from a spirit of defeat. Uh, the call of our king it rescues us from our own discouragement. And I know that we all prefer, down to the last man, woman, and child, uh, much prefer to hang out at an empty tomb, an empty tomb rather than the foot of the cross. Uh, but we need to spend some time at the foot of the cross sometimes. And we need to be able to talk about real problems uh, our own capacity for self-deception. Should we not be able to talk about and discuss and mention discouragements that we face? See, that's part of the prophetic burden that I'm given as a minister as well. Jeremiah understood this when he said, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. You see, this body and each of us individually, we have festering wounds that we don't just need to slap a band-aid over them. Rather, we need to own them and let the great physician, the physician of our souls, have his total way with us. He alone can fix us and heal us. And yet, this isn't the whole story. You see, those of us who are friends with the Holy Spirit, they know that, you know, our brokenness, our neediness, our capacity for sinfulness, our capacity for self-deception, this is not the biggest story about who you are. The bigger part of your story in Christ Jesus is how wonderful, how powerful, and how beautiful Jesus Christ is. But this is the last week where we're going to go ahead and look at the good and the bad and the ugly, and uh, we don't like to look at the bad and the ugly. But if you hang with me, I'm going to set a couple weeks from now our focus a little bit more on the good and just how good the good is.
And even though the tone of looking at tough things, heavy things, heaviness of our own heart, um, I've still been trying to count out and point out um, the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And so I shared a story of hope. I talked about what a gift we've been given to thrive in the Word of God. We're like a tree planted by streams of water. We don't wither in the heat. We produce fruit in season. A little bit of hope can sustain us through great adversity. But sometimes the circumstances that we inhabit, the circumstances of our lives, it's so heavy sometimes. Uh, it becomes an excuse to deny Christ his place as number one. Yes, you're number one, but not in this, not right now, Lord Jesus, not in this moment. Uh, but that is the pursuing heart of Jesus Christ. He's been called by one author, the great hound of heaven. The great hound of heaven, he never gives up his pursuit of our hearts, pursuing the human heart. He never gives up until he has our, our full heart, until he has our full attention, until he has our full allegiance. Jesus does not stop. See, the truth about you and me that we have to own, and it's painful to own, is that, Calvin, you're not a pretty good guy who needs a little extra Jesus sprinkled on top. The truth about me is I am a terrorist who has taken up arms in an insurrection against my king. Can I own that capacity about myself? You see, my greatest need is not for a few more goodies of heaven to sprinkle down that I can try to enjoy apart from God. My greatest need is to realize my own rebellious heart and to lay down the arms that I've taken up against my king and to be surrendered before him. Okay, Lord, have your way with me. And see, I am armed with all kinds of circumstances and excuses that will keep me from going all in for Jesus Christ. We try to hedge our bets. We try to fudge or back out on our commitments. So a couple things that we need to own, that we need to come to terms with. First, we need to own our capacity at times for rebellion against King Jesus. Some of us have never asked that, tried even to put Jesus as number one. Others of us who have been at this for a long time, we know how easy it is for us to get our priorities mixed up. And the second thing you need to know is the agenda of King Jesus. You see, the Holy Spirit is not interested in compromise. He's not wanting to play nice. He doesn't want to share. He doesn't want accommodation. The Holy Spirit isn't interested in a truce or a ceasefire. The Holy Spirit is interested in complete surrender and total takeover. That's the agenda of God. That's the agenda of the enemy of your souls. One goes about it by tempting you to make, to tempting you to be the king of your own life. I'll call my own shots by feeding your pride, by separating you from isolating you, from distracting you. That's one tactic. The other, he's trying to take over through humility through his own sacrifice, through his love, and for, through his constant desire for you to choose him freely, for your free will choice. Because if it's true love, it can only come through free will. It can't be through guilt or coercion or anything like that.
You know, and I also have to say, Jesus, he asked the impossible from us. And you know what? He doesn't even feel bad about asking for the impossible from us. He doesn't feel bad about it. You see, for you to become the person God intends for you to become, you can go a long way in your own power, your own strength, by your own wits, by your own goodness. You can do things through the habits that you form, through the hard work that you put in. But to become the person God intends you to be, you're going to need to do two things. You can't get around these two things, no matter how you wiggle and how you try. First, you got to surrender. You have to repent. If you have not had any kind of repentance in your life, if you are not repenting again and again and again, you will never become the person God intends you to be. Second, You're going to need the help of others. You're going to need the help of others. And maybe that help is unwelcome help, and it's more like iron sharpening iron in a confrontational kind of relationship with brother so-and-so who is clearly a nut job that I would just rather not deal with. Sometimes that's the help we need. But primarily the help we need is the help of God and His Holy Spirit living in us. Okay. See, the question isn't if Calvin Gruen has been playing games to keep God at arm's length. It's not a question of if. It's a question of me recognizing how. How am I playing games? How am I removing Jesus from his place of authority as number one in my life? How am I being tempted to just do my own thing? And what kind of compartments of my heart? Or I'm happy to surrender things to you, Lord, but not this one. I'm going to keep this one. Not, not right now, Lord. And we got to be able to to own these things and talk about our need and all the ways we try to do the Heisman to King Jesus. Sorry, that was a sports illustration. Not very good at that. I just had to point that out because uh, I'm not a sports guy. Now, see, I'm passing my quota of one a year I'm at least like at two or three now for this year. All right. So we looked at some heavy things, circumstances that we use as excuses. Now, I've played all of these games personally, and these are ones that I see played again and again. So number four, I'm just way too busy right now. Do you know what I'm carrying? What I'm carrying in our circumstances are real. The things that distract us are real. The pressures of work, the pressures of family. We have issues related to health, our own health, the health of people we love. These are real circumstances that tempt us to say, not right now, Lord, maybe later. Maybe a little bit later. So Jesus was aware of this. Jesus talked about these things. A couple parables that he used. Here's the first one, the parable of two sons from Matthew 21. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? See, the difference between these two sons, one repents 
and one does not. The difference between these two sons, one obeys and one does not. And what Jesus is pointing out is the grumbler and the complainer is better than the one who says, sure, I'll do that for you, but never gets around to it. It's better, and this is a thing we, it takes us so long to learn, it is better for us to argue with Jesus, to complain to Jesus, to fight with Jesus, rather than blow Jesus off. I'd just rather not deal with this. And we never get around to dealing with it. Here's another parable. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and inviting many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent, some, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I need to go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. For me, five Teslas. I've got to go test these things out. Still another said, I just got married. So obviously I can't come. It's just excuses. And if you read that parable, you'll read the reaction of the host of that great banquet and the anger that he has over being treated this way. Let me just say the problem, I mean, if you're using the excuse of five oxen in our day and age, that's maybe a, a little bit fishy excuse. But that was a legitimate excuse back then. See, the problem is not with the circumstances. The problem is not with the legitimacy of the excuses. These are all very good and legitimate reasons. The problem isn't the reasons. The problem is the failure to understand the priority of the king's banquet. The problem is the failure to understand the importance of the call of the king and where that call needs to take priority no matter what your circumstances are. You see, the enemy of your soul, he will give you work, he will give you money, he will give you entertainment, he will give you rest and all kinds of good things to keep you away from Christian fellowship to keep you away from any kind of meaningful service whatsoever. Any way your life could potentially answer the call of King Jesus and the mission of God. He will do everything he can to keep you from that. So what starts out as, you know, I just need a moment and I'll be back soon. How often does that turn into so long and thanks for all the fish? All right, number two, or number five. Number two for today, the introvert's dream. I, you don't, maybe you don't know this about me. I am an introvert. I'm a high-functioning introvert, which means I can fake it like I'm an extrovert sometimes but I don't get energy from those extroverted situations. I don't get rest from trying to be an extrovert in situations. So the introvert's dream is one I have a particular love for. <laughs> Let me just say, first off, hermiting, hiding away, hermiting, it's not the problem. Some people learn a lot by hermiting. Godly hermiting is called silence and solitude. It can become our alone time with God a profound place of connection with the Lord, a profound place of growth and understanding what the Lord wants. Silence and solitude are where we learn to let go of our need to perform and our need to control. 
Silence and solitude are where we learn patience, where we learn to be still and know that I am God, where we learn to recognize and attend to the still, small voice of God. A lot of us can't recognize the voice of God and the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives and through our circumstances, not because he's giving us magic words in our ears. It's because we have not stilled ourselves enough and learned to be quiet in his presence, that we are challenged and changed. Silence and solitude, if it's godly, you know what? It actually builds relationships and helps us love people better. That's why rest can be holy for us. It can build relationship. In fact, i got to say, godly hermiting, this world would be a better place if more of us would learn, just learn how to be alone together with God. This world would be a better place if we would learn how to be alone and spend time alone together with God. The problem is, a lot of our hermiting, a lot of our introverting, it's not in order to spend time with God. It's in order to hide from other people. We aren't searching for God. We're trying to avoid brother nut job, so-and-so. So how do you know when your hermiting is turning into running to the, the Lord, running to God, and it's turning into hiding from, hiding from the Lord, hiding from his commands, hiding from his people. Look at your life. What fruit is being produced? Are you growing in intimacy with God? Are you growing in your relationship with this church? your capacity to serve, your capacity to help? Are your relationships, are they flourishing or are they languishing? You see, when God isn't in our solitude, when he is not the theme of our solitude, we grow bad fruit. In those places, pride grows. In those places, loneliness grows. Depression grows. Delusion grows in that place. When God isn't in my solitude, that delusion comes in voices like, no one cares, no one loves me. Those people, they're really against me. They're not for me. God gives us a great gift in himself, and he also gives us a great gift in each other. And we got to talk about that. we got to talk about that aspect of the call of the king. Because everywhere Jesus goes, he takes his family with him. And he does not give himself to us apart from all the other people he claims as his own. And that's a pretty big group of people, let me tell you. Sometimes our brothers and sisters, they're, they're helping us in iron sharpening iron. They're, they are the ones who are helping me learn patience. Lord, help me. Sometimes our brothers and sisters, they are a gift of encouragement. They teach us things. We have fellowship together. We grow in friendship. Who, who are your closest friends here at the Eugene Church of Christ? Who comes to mind when you think, who are my closest friends? My, this is it for my people here at this church. If no one comes to mind, there's a problem with that. There's a problem with the church, probably, yeah. But you've got to recognize there's a problem in your own heart as well. The good news is God helps us with all of that. See, the root of the introvert's dream, the base thing, the reality that is toxic underneath it all, is apart from God, the introvert's dream becomes a kind of selfishness that is tied to our own desire for comfort and safety. It's just easier not to. Thank you very much. I can manage this. Those people are chaos. Those people are unknown. 
I would just be better off. So let me talk about the fruit of isolation a minute. Not to beat a dead horse, but I'm good at beating dead horses. You know that about me. The problem with isolating ourselves, we are never challenged with our own selfishness. Delusion grows in isolation. In isolation, it is easier for me and it is easier for you to believe the worst about other people and about yourself. They never loved me. They talk a good game, but... And that gives way to other delusions of, I'm not good enough. I'm not worth it. I'm a failure. God is disappointed in me. Delusion grows in isolation. And number three, you know, I'm not an expert in mental health issues, but I do study these things on a practical level for sure. And even though I cannot explain to you uh, biochemistry of what's happening, um, piles of research, I've been around the block enough to see this. There is a correlation of some kind between isolation without God and the growth of depression. Isolation will grow depression. Depression will grow isolation. There is a connection there that you need to be aware of. All right. Problem number six, the problem of indifference. The problem of, you know what? I'm just not feeling it. I know... I know I should be able to rouse enthusiasm for what's going on here, but the truth is, I just don't, I don't really care. I'm not feeling it. I just rather not. It's lackluster. There's no draw. My desire, the desire is not there. This is for the masses of people who approach their faith as a casual spectator. I know I probably should care, but I just can't seem to rouse the energy to give a flip. I just can't get there. I don't know why. These are people who are religious consumers who practice a form of vampire Christianity. They consistently have no skin in the game. They're not involved in any of the work of the church. They're not involved in service. They're not involved in good deeds. They haven't come to term with the call of the king to take up a cross, to become a living sacrifice. See, the truth is, our circumstances aren't bad for most of us. Our circumstances are so good. Our circumstances are so good that we are overly pleasured. We're overly pleasured. So, so much so, we're so satiated to the point that it's hard for us to arouse much interest in anything, much less uncomfortable things that, the call, that my king calls me to. I'd just rather not. Sigh. How do you fight indifference? How do you fight that kind of apathy? We all get this place from time to time. I stand at the front of that line too. How do you fight that? You make yourself a servant. You put yourself out there in service. You don't hermit, you don't hide, you make yourself a servant. Consistent involvement. It's easy at first, we get psyched up, I can do this, we jump in. About week three, oh, I don't know. About week five, the Lord really doesn't want this. He, he, because you should hear what that lady is saying. It's, this would be fine. I could do this, except that. <laughs> I play this game all the time. We fight it through prayer. Prayer is such a gift for us. We need to talk about this more. We need to be engaged in this more. Intercessory prayer is especially helpful in this regard. 
where you're not just there, Lord, I know I'm broken, it's all about me, but you're praying for the needs of others around you. Intercessory prayer is wonderful. I'd say all kind of prayer helps us, but that especially when you're lifting up the needs of the body of Christ and the needs of other people you know, and you're serious about it, and you go to battle on behalf of others, it'll help you fight the apathy of your own heart. Number, uh, the last one I put there is fasting. When you learn how to give up certain things, comforts, and pleasures, and you learn how to fight those things, those temptations, toward food, toward whatever, uh, food, comfort, sex, whatever, however it comes to you, when you fight that temptation and you learn how to go without, you become stronger. You become stronger. You can go longer. You can do better. So that's just a few. There's a lot of other ways that we can uh, talk about that as well. All right. Jesus was aware of the indifference and the selfishness of human hearts. None of this is a surprise to Jesus. Sometimes because of our capacity for self-deception, it comes to us as a surprise that you would suggest that maybe I have a problem with some of these things sometimes. How dare you, Calvin? How dare you? Jesus' words to the Laodiceans. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Whew. Gives me shivers just reading that. If a lukewarm heart was a problem for a church that personally knew an apostle of Jesus Christ, that had personally witnessed miracles. You think it's a problem for us today? How much more so? And we play other games. We play other games besides these. This is, I've, I've talked, I've beat the dead horse enough. I thank you for, for uh, indulging me in this. This is a way to set up what's coming next. Because the truth is, our brokenness is not the biggest part of the story. It's not the biggest part of our story. It's the king himself. The king glorious, the king in his mercy and his forgiveness. His beauty, his goodness and his love. So this is not an exhaustive list of games, but these are games that I play personally and games that I've seen a lot, even around a lot of churches and a lot around a lot of church folks. Uh, see, all of these games, though, they have one thing in common. Have you ever seen guys on the street where they're, they're putting cards down and they're shuffling cards? So you got two ja jacks and a queen. Just three cards there. And they're moving them, slide of hand. And they say, pick out where the queen is. So they're moving the cards, moving the cards. And you think you know where the queen is. You say, ah, that one. Flip it over. No, that's not the queen, that's a jack. And so he does it again, he does it again. And they rope you in. Sometimes they do it for gambling or money. Where? Where's the queen? And in the sleight of hand of that game, a lot of times there is no queen. It's just three jacks. That is the way the enemy of your soul works. He is a master of distraction. And that's what's killing the church. It's what kills us individually. This is the number one tactic of the devil, just so you know, that I see universally across the board. And all of these kind of games are all in some way related to this tactic. Distraction. 
If I can just keep them focused here. He does this in our circumstances. Lucifer, the Lord of light, does it through electronic means in your home privately in the evenings. Distracted from what the real battles are. He does it through news media. He does it through blah, 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 blah. You see, for a lot of us, the enemy, he doesn't need to worry about destroying you. He doesn't need to destroy you. He just needs to distract you so that you'll be ineffective. He just needs to distract you so he can rob you blind. That's his tactic. So there's this writer. I, uh, I want to, well, first of all, this, this is a question, a serious question, and we'll get into a story written by a guy named C.S. Lewis, who I referred to in Narnia stuff last week. And this, this theologian, he's asked this question, why is it when so many aspire to a spiritual Christ-like life, there are so few who make very much progress in actually becoming self-sacrificial, in actually becoming love, in actually living out the fullness of the fruit of the Holy Spirit? It's not that God is holding us back from that or limiting those things. He wants to give us more and more. It's we ourselves who walk away from the table. Because when he says about the fruit of the Spirit, he ends that by saying, against such things there is no law. Which means there's no limit I'm placing on this. You can have as much of this as you want. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You gorge yourself on that. You're not counting calories at that buffet, let me tell you. Why is it that so, when so many aspire to the spiritual life, there are so few who make much progress? His answer was very simple, and yet I found it very profound. They pay too much attention to insignificant things. Too much attention to things that in the end they don't matter a hill of beans. And yet we're lost by that. We're the, so-and-so did this. This is my circumstance. This is my... If the enemy of your souls can just keep you focused there, focused on those moving cards, you'll never see that he's pulled the real card off the table. He's just got to distract us. So C.S. Lewis... He says this was the hardest book that he ever wrote. He says it almost undid him to write this. Uh, and he wrote a lot of good, thoughtful things. But the one that almost destroyed him to write, it's a little book called The Screwtape Letters. And uh, if you don't know about this book, he, this is a masterpiece that he wrote. It's a work of fiction, but it gets much closer to truth than a lot of tomes of big theology books. He just cuts right through all of that to give us a glimpse of maybe, hey, this is something what it looks like. This book is a series of letters written from Screwtape, who is a senior-level demon, to his nephew Wormwood, a younger demon just starting out in the temptation business. Wormwood is just trying to learn, how do you tempt these creatures, humans? How do you, how do, you do a good job of that? And this is the advice this senior devil, uh, Screwtape, gives. Uh, in order to keep the patient, which is uh, a young man who has just become a Christian, how to keep that patient, uh, how to tempt him properly to keep them distracted from a relationship with God. So let me read some of these words because I think they're really profound. So this is Uncle Screwtape talking to Wormwood. You will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wondering attention. You no longer even need a good book or fill in the blank, whatever it is. Netflix, video games, whatever you want to use as your distraction. Whatever chemicals you want to add to that distraction to enhance that distraction, whatever. 
maybe, it's maybe not a good book for you. Sometimes it's a good book is all it takes, which he really likes to keep him from his prayers, from his work, or from his sleep. What keeps you from your prayers? What keeps you from your work? What keeps you from your sleep? Sometimes it's just a column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods of time. And doing nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and it knows not why. In the gratifications of curiosities so feeble, so feeble and so trivial that the man is only half aware of them. You will say that these are small sins and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, God. The extent to which you separate that person from God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle, screw tape. That gives me chills as well, a different kind of chill. Our society is built on distraction. Our culture is in love with distraction, distracting us from things that truly matter, distracting us from where the fight really is, and if you, are care- if you are not careful to fight against this tendency in your own life, and your own heart, you will give your life away to things that are trivial and really don't matter. You will spend the strength of your years on dust in the wind. Well, we get trapped by our circumstances. We get stuck there. We get trapped by our own feelings. I'm not feeling this. I'm just... We make feelings into our gods, and when there's a feeling there, it is a command I have to obey in my culture, not with King Jesus. They didn't care until I stopped coming. They should have. They talk a good talk, but no one really lives it. I've gone too far. It's too late for me. There are no answers. I can't really know. I can't be sure of anything. Why bother? I can't change. Maybe it's, I don't want to change. I'm better off if people would just leave me alone. Thank you very much. Where do these ideas come from? Do these ideas come from God? These are, to put it frankly, these are demonic ideas. This is diabolical kinds of thinking. The kind of thinking that will destroy relationships and destroy your capacity to love. You know, I was involved in all kinds of crazy spiritual warfare in Tanzania, and you want to know the truth of what I found out about the demonic? First of all, a demon only is going to take enough, he only gets enough power over you that you surrender to him. And so the people who are most possessed are the people whose wills are completely broken. They have no self-will left. It's, it's gone. These are people who have been used in so many ways. Drugs, they don't have no teeth anymore. Whatever, the circumstances, sexual abuse, the brokenness is so great that they, their will has collapsed inside. Those are the people who are most susceptible. But the demonic only has as much power as you will allow it to have in your life. 
these kinds of diabolical thinking and diabolical ideas, it's only going to have as much strength and as much uh, front page news time in your life as what you choose to give it. Are you going to entertain these things? Are you going to dwell on these things? Are you going to let them set the tone? You know how you fight the demonic? You talk back. You talk back. You read the scripture. There is a verse in the Bible and then some multiple for every kind of stinking thinking there is out there. To use stinking thinking, I got that from Celebrate Recovery when I was doing some stuff with them. You fight these kinds of ideas by speaking truth to them. And maybe there is a truth about a brokenness that, and a truth about what someone has done. But there is a truth that is able to fight against that. And Jesus used these words, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. There is power in those words that can break diabolical thinking. You fight in prayer. You fight with praise. Almighty fortress is our God. That's probably not a song my kids would pick, but they can fight with other praise songs that are out there, with other praise ideas. Scripture is crucial. Saturate your mind in Scripture. You'll be, you'll be strong. You, you, it's putting, what this is, is this putting on of the full armor of God, which Ephesians 5 talks about. It's 5, 6. I have to look that up later, sorry. You fight diabolical thinking. Now, I think it's, it's important that I have kind of described the wound and that we're not just trying to put a Band-Aid on our wounds. wounds. Our, our, our problems are real. The problems of this church are real. The problems of your own heart and your own life, the problem of your preacher, all of those things are real. So we got to be able to talk about the full reality of that. But the real power to fight is not on focusing on the problems. It's by focusing on King Jesus. What does God want from me? What does God want from my life? What does he call me to? So from Colossians, he says, Paul says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Uh, from Hebrews, it's fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. And it goes on to say, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The safest people from attacks of diabolical thinking are people who are infatuated with Jesus Christ, lovers of Jesus, you get your eyes off your own messes, your own garbage, and you're so focused on Jesus Christ. That beauty. I don't expect that me talking about the problem is going to produce repentance in anyone. Not even myself. But I expect that when you look at the beauty of Jesus Christ, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point, you are going to see beauty there and it's going to strike you to the core, that will cause repentance. Love will bring you to surrender. So I want to end with one scripture that talks about this as well. And that'll be our close. So um, Jason, you can come up. This is my, my invitation. So I'll just share this story. This wasn't in my notes even. I just thought about it in the moment, so I'm taking that as a prompt because maybe it illustrates a truth. So, uh, you know, uh, one of the guys who has mentored me in my life is actually, he's not Church of Christ, so I don't know. Uh, he's a Methodist, a Wesleyan of all things. And uh, 
a wise spirit, a soul, and a good man, and from South Africa, and I've learned a lot by looking at his life. And uh, he tells a story about South Africa uh, in a time of apartheid and stuff like that. There was Desmond Tutu, and when he was a younger guy, my friend, he knew Desmond Tutu back when all this was going on. And uh, 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 this Desmond Tutu, he, gives, he was giving gospels to people, just on the streets, walking around, giving, giving them away. And uh, he comes to one guy who he liked to roll his cigarettes. And he liked that thin Bible paper, most of all. And so when Desmond Tutu went to give him this Bible, the guy said, if you give me that, I want you to know, I'm going to smoke my way through that entire Bible. I'm going to use it for my cigarettes or maybe for other things that I need. Wipe my nose or whatever. And Tutu said, you just go ahead and take that. Take it anyway. I know you will, but you use that. And sometimes you might read a little bit of it. Well, the guy takes it and he begins to use it. That great thin Bible paper. It's really great for rolling his cigarettes that he made rolled by hand. He smoked his way through Matthew. He smoked his way through Mark. He smoked his way through Luke. And he was well into John, smoking his way through John. And his eyes fell to these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but shall have eternal life. Common words that we know, but something about those words stuck, and they changed this man's life. The beauty of Jesus Christ had captivated his heart and made all things new and made all things possible suddenly. So in the upcoming weeks, a couple weeks from now, uh, we're going to look at some of these beautiful things. So I thank you for uh, engaging with me and entertaining some of this heaviness about our own neediness. But the bigger part of the story is where we are going to set your mind. And that's the question for you in the priority of Jesus Christ, the priority that you give to the call to the great banquet. It's all about Him. And where we set our minds is here. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, you think about such things. That's a better invitation than I can give with any words that I can come up with. So let's stand and sing together.